Afternoon, everyone. It's a beautiful day. I want to take a moment to talk about uh, the president's diagnosis uh, with COVID. Uh, first, we continue to pray for his recovery, recovery of the First Lady, and we pray for the recovery of all the people in this country and around the world uh, who have the virus. We also pray for uh, families uh, of those who have lost someone to the virus. The president said yesterday that we should not let the virus dominate, dominate our life, and that certainly is, is true. Uh, we have to learn to live with it, at least for a while. Now, part of that means accepting that is in every community in Ohio and that all of us are at risk of getting it. Part of that also means taking the necessary precautionary measures we all need to take to help keep our economy open, uh, keep it open, and to keep our kids in school, to be able to visit our loved ones and nursing homes, um, and to do all the things that we want to do and to bring some sense of normalcy back to our lives. And we can do all these things. That, of course, means wearing masks, keeping our distance, washing our hands, avoiding large gatherings. It means taking this virus seriously and respecting this enemy, knowing that it poses a great risk to our ability to keep Ohio safe, keep Ohio open. It certainly, though, does not mean that we have to be afraid. It does, however, mean that we have to be realistic and practical about it. Over the last few days, we've seen commentators uh, raise a number of points and questions about the president's, president's illness. Should the president have left Walter Reed and gone back to the White House? Uh, other people have raised questions. Why did he leave at the time that he did? Um, should the White House be contact tracing? Should the president have taken his mask off on the White House balcony yesterday when he turned to salute? These questions go on and on. If you watched any TV yesterday or the day before, these are the, some of the questions that you, we continue to see. And look, people can continue to talk about that, and that's, that's fine. But for all of us in Ohio, my fellow citizens, I think we need to keep focused. Um, Ohioans should ask, what are the enduring lessons that we have learned from the president and first lady's illness? What, what lessons, what lessons are relevant to each of us? I have a few. I'm sure each one of us can come up with some. One, even the leader of our great country can get the virus. It can happen to anyone. No one is immune. Second, while testing can be and is very important, even very frequent testing cannot substitute for masks and social distancing. They have to go together. Number three, masks 
do matter. Just number four, distance matters. Number five, contact tracing matters. As I said, we can all come up with our list, but it seems to me that those are things that all of us can take away from the president's illness. In the days ahead, let us talk and focus on the things that you and I can actually do, that we can actually impact, the things that we can do to fight back against the virus, the things that we can do to enable us to have more freedom, to enable us to live a more normal life. Each of us can demonstrate our love and our respect for our fellow Ohioans by wearing a mask, by avoiding large gatherings of people, by frequently washing our hands, and by keeping at least six feet distance from others. All of these things are within our control. This virus is the enemy of our freedom. And by doing these things to fight back against it, we will keep our kids in school, we'll keep them playing sports, we'll keep our economy moving forward, and all of this together, working together, all of us, will allow us to live with this virus until the time when it is gone. These are the things that must be our focus. These are things that will remain my focus. Today, I'm wearing a pink tie to acknowledge October as Breast Cancer Awareness Month. One in nine women will develop breast cancer, making the disease the second leading cause of cancer death among women. In Ohio, more than 9,800 cases of breast cancer are diagnosed in women each year, accounting for nearly 30% of all cancers in women. There is good news. In Ohio, the female uh, breast cancer mortality rate has dropped 11% in 10 years. The survival rate among Ohio women diagnosed with early stage breast cancer is nearly 100%. Early detection is very critical. It is recommended that average risk women ages 50 to 74 receive a mammogram every two years. That's something obviously everyone should consult their own doctor. Ohio's Breast and Cervical Cancer Project assists women in finding screening providers and other resources and guiding them through the healthcare process. The program all also offers no-cost screenings and diagnostic testing, diagnostic testing to those who qualify. For help or information, call 1-844-430-2227 or search for bccp and odh.ohio.gov. And again, that, the phone number, 1-844-430-2227. We talk um, about our teachers a lot uh, because they're doing some just amazing work out there every single day in Ohio. Uh, they're teaching through a pandemic. They're doing something that no Ohio teachers had to do for 100 years. Um, yesterday was World Teacher Day, and I want to take a moment to thank all of Ohio's teachers. Uh, this past year has certainly 
been a struggle. Um, whether it's juggling distance education, hybrid or in-person teaching, helping students manage their feelings, uh, their mental health challenges that they might face, or working with families to help kids succeed, we thank our teachers for their dedication. We invited today Ohio's Teacher of the Year, Anthony Coy Gonzalez, a fourth and fifth grade teacher at the Ohio School for the Deaf. We've asked him to join us today. Superintendent of the school says Anthony has an amazing ability, an amazing ability to, to connect with students. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us today. Good afternoon, Governor DeWine, and thank you very much for inviting me here this afternoon. My name is Anthony Coy Gonzalez, and I am a teacher at the Ohio School for the Deaf. As we have a certified deaf interpreter with us today, I will let her take over in native ASL, and I will use my voice. Thank you for providing this access for our deaf community. And I also wanna thank you on behalf of my students for recognizing their hard work last year in one of your press conferences. Anthony, uh, congratulations um, in Teacher of the Year. Uh, we all congratulate you for your Good dedication afternoon, Governor DeWine. To, to young people. Um, tell us a little bit about what school looks like uh, for your students this year. So our school has changed uh, quite drastically over the last seven months. And uh, it's been a challenge uh, for, for all of us, but it's also been an opportunity to learn. Um, and we've been uh, quite resilient. We've seen uh, students, teachers, staff, and families all pitch in to reimagine what school can look like. Um, so this year we have a schedule that's been uh, updated that allows us to have more time uh, with our students every day, reading, writing, math, social studies, and science. We also have opportunities to meet one-on-one -on -one with our students to help them through their special education plans and provide that really valuable time. But it is quite different. Uh, we've had to deliver meals. We've been uh, out there uh, delivering classroom materials to help our students succeed. Uh, but it is, uh, it is a unique, unique opportunity for us. So, uh, Anthony, are you are you 100%, I may have missed it, but are you 100% uh, virtual or or you have some in, in, in class or how does that work? So, currently, we are virtual, uh, fully virtual, um, but we are looking forward to opening our school back up later this month to host some of the students who are ready to return. And we're also preparing uh, to continue that virtual instruction for families who choose to do so uh, for the, the second quarter. And, and, and what might be unique challenges that you're facing now with, with, with your students? Um, and if, besides something that maybe um, another teacher might be facing, what, what's sure. unique? So our students, um, that we, the students that we serve are in our school use American Sign Language as their primary language. And so we are using uh, technology that we received last year, uh, thankfully, uh, right in time in March to access that communication and be able to provide that direct instruction to students through uh, the online learning. Um, we also uh, are looking to using masks when we return, and that's going to be an additional barrier that we are working through. Our school is preparing uh, virtual lessons online, uh, also providing individual uh, PPE for our staff that might have clear masks um, where you will have that visible window. 
um, and with that window that will provide that additional access to American Sign Language. And so um, in, in that classroom, uh, explain to me how this works. You, you, were, you were signing for us at the beginning. And so somebody in your classroom, is that how they're getting your course generally from you? Yes. So typically every day I will be using sign language um, without the use of my voice in class. And that will be our primary uh, mode of instruction uh, throughout the day. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the challenges of being completely virtual uh, since the pandemic has been um, not having those students that we've missed um, all this time, uh, but also those students uh, missing school and their teachers and having that regular communication in our school um, for their, their access to language throughout the day. So I imagine you and the students are looking forward to kind of getting back together in class? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I had the opportunity, and I know a lot of uh, Ohio's teachers had the opportunity to uh, drop off some supplies to their students uh, over the summer, and uh, that was magic. Um, we miss them so much, and we can't wait for them to be back. Um, we, we've seen some of those social emotional needs um, and being able to connect with them in person from a safe distance with masks. Um, you know, has, has been a, a beautiful opportunity and we're really looking forward to continuing to provide that once we get back into, into the building. Anthony, one last question. Can you, can you uh, uh, admire teachers very much and admire you? Um, how did you become a teacher? What, what inspired you to do that? What was your pathway? Sure. Um, I think uh, my story is probably this uh, very similar to a lot of teachers out there, just having a heart for kids and wanting to make a difference. And I think uh, we're in an opportunity right now where we, we can definitely do so. Um, I attended Flagler College in St. Augustine, Florida after graduating from uh, Hillier City Schools um, and uh, took sign language courses and pursued it and uh, returned home to Ohio where um, I'm able to give back to the community like a lot of teachers out there. Um, really proud to, to serve with all of Ohio's teachers. So how many years you've been teaching now? Seven years. Seven, Seven years. years. Well, thank you, and we're glad you're in Ohio, and uh, I know you'll be happy, and your students will be happy to see you and get back into the, into the classroom, but thank you very, very much, uh, and again, congratulations. Uh, there's so many good teachers out there, and you're kind of the symbol uh, of all of those teachers who are making a difference uh, every single day. Anthony, thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate it. it. Thank, you thank you very much. Eric, let's go and look at the slides. Um, we'll start off with our general slide. Um, unfortunately, at 1,335 new cases is what we're reporting. Um, you know, this is, this is trending upward. We're now, um, you can kind of see the trend of uh, the last 21 days. Uh, we're over now 1,000. Uh, there was a time not too long ago when we were dipping below 1,000. We're over 1,000 now, uh, so we're, we are concerned uh, about, about that. Uh, let's go to the next slide, Eric, which is really uh, a kind of a new slide. It's based on the same information that you have seen before. But I thought it might be interesting. We really have two things that we look at every week. And uh, on Thursday, we'll announce the new uh, color code. Uh, we'll give the new list for one through 88 counties as far as the incidents. And those are two really different ways of, of measuring, um, you know, the situation that you have in your particular county. So I think it's, you know, we wanted to kind of put these two together 
Uh, and so what you're going to see on here is just the red, the red counties uh, right now. And then the other counties that you see on here uh, that are kind of a orange yellow, I'm not quite sure what that is, but uh, the other color there uh, are counties that have a high incidence um, of, of the virus. Um, high incidence uh, counties are ones with greater than 100 cases per 100,000 population in the last two weeks. And so the rest of these counties are, are counties that don't fall into either one of these categories. So to summarize it, these are the counties that we would worry the most about. Doesn't mean everybody else is, doesn't have something to worry about, but these are the counties. Uh, these two color, these counties are the, are the ones uh, that you have something, something else, uh, you know, they're at a, either a high incident level uh, or they are um, a red because they've met enough of those seven indicators. So again, we do kind of see a pattern uh, over in the over in the western western side of the state. But uh, that's again a new map. Uh, we'll put that up so people can see it. It is a combination of several other maps, and we kind of put them together in a different way uh, to to look at. Eric, let's go to our top 20 Ohio counties ranked by highest occurrence. Uh, and again, uh, we start uh, with, with Mercer. Uh, Athens is now number two. It looks like Putnam, Fulton, Dark, Defiance, uh, Fayette, uh, Henry, Wood, Auglaize. And then we drop to Lawrence and we keep, keep going from there. Again, uh, it's, it, it is of interest uh, just geographically. Uh, most of these, first of all, are rural counties. Uh, and, and second, with a couple of exceptions, most of them are in northwest, uh, western part, western part of the of the state. Uh, let's go to the 88. Eric, you're showing that one there, and again, that is up. And people, anyone can go take a look at those 88 counties. You can see where your county is ranked. Again, this is by number of cases uh, the last the last two weeks. Uh, let's talk for a moment about uh, hospitalization. Hospital admissions have been declining, had been declining for many weeks since our peak in mid-July. Unfortunately, we started to see that trend change a few weeks ago. Uh, as a reminder, hospital admissions are a lagging indicator. Uh, the data comes a little later as folks in the hospital go, go to some hospital for something um, that they need that kind of, particularly that kind of care. Uh, so. Let's look at several of these. This is number of hospital admissions, and you can start to see a trend. This starts over here in April, goes all the way across. If you can't read it, goes to the week that we are into now. These data fills in late sometimes, so we might get information today that might indicate back here, or might indicate here. Um, and so uh, it's probably best not to look at this this week because it hasn't filled in fully. But you do start to see a, a, a trend going up uh, a little bit, not marked on there yet, uh, but we, we see that trend. Um, our data team uh, showed me some things this morning I want to share with you, and they've taken hospital admissions, and they've really come up with uh, different ways of looking at this. Uh, this is hospital admissions uh, by age. As we said earlier, uh, in August and September, spread among the young and healthy uh, 
uh, we are afraid will eventually impact those who are older and more vulnerable. The average age of COVID cases, uh, and this is, has gone up, and unfortunately, so is the average age of hospitalizations. So this is a relatively uh, new trend. In fact, in recent weeks, Ohioans 60 and older now account for about 70% of COVID hospital admissions. This is considerably higher than the 50% that we saw in July. Um, it's, it, it's only natural, I think, to see older people are the ones going to the hospital more, but uh, we have seen a marked change just since July. Again, 50% uh, of the people going into our hospitals for COVID uh, in July uh, were 60 years of age or older. Now that number is up to 70% who are 60 years of age or older. So again, uh, you can just you can kind of see, and we'll make this available on our, our web page um, as, as well. Um, what you see, the colors, the dark, darker red, purple, uh, this, is, this would be 70 to 79, this would, be, this would be 80 plus. So you can look at these colors, and these are the two interesting, they're all interesting, but you can look at these two colors, and what you will see is that the older population, you know, is, is taking more percentage of those cases going to the hospital, of that, of that population. Eric, let's look at the next one. This is hospital admission by county type. So we break it down uh, into urban counties, suburban and small metro, and rural counties. And what we're starting to see here, what we are seeing here is the red, the rural, again, comprise more of the total number of COVID cases, COVID admissions into hospitals, people with COVID who are going into hospitals. And so it's just, these are just interesting trends. More rural, we're seeing it more rural, and we're seeing it older. And now we're, let's look, uh, another way of looking at this is percentage of hospital admissions by region. Um, and again, these are the regions. You can, again, you'll be able to pull this down, um, and you can just kind of make your own conclusions here. But the green, uh, the green, which is region one, uh, north, northwest Ohio, um, and so we're starting to see that. Uh, we're seeing relatively fewer residents of the Cleveland-Columbus area being admitted with COVID. At the same time, our three Western regions, one, three, and six. One, three, and six, as you see them uh, there, are seeing a greater percentage of hospital admissions, along with some increases in regions seven and eight, which is Southeast Ohio. Uh, I will make it clear, all of our regions have adequate capacity remaining in the hospitals. Uh, we're certainly keeping a close eye on it, but, but we are okay. Uh, but it is, a, it is a geographical switch, and we're seeing an age switch. Um, let me talk for a moment about something that uh, I've heard from a number of superintendents um, and health directors and very, very concerned. Um, we... And let me just say again, um, very impressed with what our teachers are doing, what our principals are doing, what our superintendents are doing. They're doing an absolutely uh, phenomenal job um, trying to get as many of the kids uh, back in school uh, as they can. We've heard from many superintendents, though, uh, about the number of students who are meeting the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's definition of close contact and are being put into quarantine. Um, in most cases, um, you know, this is, again, this is 
This is guidance from the CDC. So you might have uh, a young person who is in class, let's say a high school student, uh, it's determined that they have COVID. Uh, then they go back and determine who they were seated within, you know, a close distance within six feet. Uh, and then the CDC guidelines talks about those individuals being quarantined. Um, the CDC, and I'll just quote part of it, uh, in the context of COVID-19, the definition of a close contact is someone who is within six feet of a person diagnosed with COVID-19 for a total of 15 minutes or more. Um, I'll just go down a little bit. The determination of close contact should be made, this is what the CDC says, irrespective of whether the person with COVID-19 or the contact was wearing a mask. Uh, and, and so what people have said to us is, look, we're, you know, both people were wearing masks. Both students were wearing masks. They were within six feet, but they were both wearing masks. They were above 15 minutes, but they were both wearing masks. And what, you know, shouldn't that basically, shouldn't that count for something? So we're looking at this. Uh, frankly, we're, our health uh, department and our health experts and others who we consult outside the health department are very reluctant to change this without data. Uh, so we're going to go out and try to get some data. And uh, what we're going to do is to take the new tests, some of the new tests uh, that are coming in from the White House uh, that we expect to be here any day. Uh, we're Vasco Ohio State uh, researchers to come up with a protocol. Uh, we're going to take 10, we think 10 uh, school districts uh, or school buildings in the state. And what we're going to do is run a test, frankly, uh, of those individuals who meet that criteria who would normally have been quarantined uh, and we're going to follow them with very frequent, frequent strip test tests, these, these strip, new strip tests. So again, we'll have more details in the future. Um, this is not the announcement of when we're going to start it, uh, but we're, I wanted to let everyone know that we are working on this. Uh, frankly, some, you know, we've seen a lot of gut wrenching things and things that just as, as a parent uh, bother me. Uh, you know, kids missing out on school, kids missing out on activities that they want to uh, be involved in. Uh, but frankly, you know, our medical experts uh, do not feel that we can move off this without data. So what we're going to look at to see is, okay, let's follow these kids who had this exposure where both people had masks, they were within six feet of each other, and they were together for more than 15 minutes. Uh, and we're going to take some, 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 of the, some of those and follow them and just see you know, what they do in fact develop. Do they in fact come down with the COVID or, or, or not and what the percentages are and see if the data can help inform us as how we move forward. Uh, last week, uh, I wanted to, uh, we had invited Recovery Ohio Director Alicia Nelson. Uh, Alicia worked uh, with me in the Attorney General's office. Uh, she heads up our, basically our anti-drug efforts, our recovery efforts. Uh, in the state. And I, I wanted to in, invite her to join us today uh, to talk about, you know, some of the things that, that we are seeing. And I know, Alicia, uh, last month uh, was Recovery Ohio Month, but uh, for you, uh, for the departments, uh, for every Ohio and every month really is kind of Recovery Month. Um, and so tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're seeing out there. I mean, we, we know that um, you know, we're seeing 
uh, an increase in mental health problems. We're seeing an increase in, in, in drug use, uh, drug dependency. And so these are some of the, 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 the things that have come along with uh, the, the virus that, you know, obviously caused us a great deal of, of, of concern. So, Alicia, I'm going to turn it over to you and kind of tell us uh, maybe what we're doing and what could be of help. Well, thank you, Governor. Uh, first, I want to uh, echo what you said and, and thank everyone who participated last month in National Recovery Month. And I'm glad to also be here with you this week to kick off Mental Health Awareness Week and talk about what Ohio's been working on to support those with mental health and substance use disorders and their families. Um, as you said, uh, we have seen some increases that have concerned us. And, and what research has really told us is that at times of natural disaster or traumatic events, um, and, and in this case, in pandemic times, uh, it has proven to be uh, a time of increased anxiety and stress for those uh, across the country, and it's been certainly true in Ohio. And what we're seeing is that, you know, people who have never had to worry about mental health or uh, other issues like uh, stress and anxiety are starting to have feelings and symptoms of stress and anxiety. And then those who uh, frequently or, or may struggle with a condition, a uh, mental health condition or substance use disorder are seeing their symptoms increase. And so what we have done is wanted to make sure that folks knew that our behavioral health system is open and we wanted to make sure that that system remained open and work to be creative to do uh, that work to, to make sure the system stayed open, I guess is what, what we really wanted to say here. And one of the ways that we've done that is through our telehealth system. Right now, if you have a phone in Ohio, you can access treatment supports um, and, and really get to talk with someone about any of the symptoms you're feeling. We also wanted to make sure that important medication-assisted treatment services uh, through our opiate treatment programs remained available and have really allowed for take-home dosing. And it really expanded the use of naloxone as the third way to make sure that we're looking at opiate overdose deaths um, and, and overdoses and, and really combat those with any tool that we have in the toolbox. And naloxone is an important tool for that. So right now, if you're in our state, you can access naloxone by mail uh, through our Ohio Department of Health or your local Department of Health's Project Down program, along with many other programs across the state. And we felt that that would be important um, as we move forward and continue to address this crisis together. So, uh... Uh, Director, in regard to someone, let's say you have someone in your family uh, who has an addiction problem, and you're concerned that they may have relapsed, or well, how do you, how do you, how should a person deal with that? Say they've got a brother. Let's say they've got a, a son, daughter, somebody in their mother, or somebody in their family. One of the best things that you can do is is really talk to somebody about what you're experiencing and and recognize that. Uh, the any differences that you see in your family members or even in yourself during these times that you you do have a support network in the state of Ohio that can help you. And one avenue to get support is the COVID care line that the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services has set up. That tool is available seven days a week, 24 hours a day. 
Um, it's a, a toll-free call-in line. You can call and talk to somebody about what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, and they can really help you navigate through uh, through that. And that number is 1-800-720-9616. Again, 1-800-720-9616. And if you don't catch it live here today, we have that up on the coronavirus website. So even, even though it says for COVID and, and it, it really, if I call there and I've got someone, I don't have a uh, a, a COVID problem, I've got a mental health problem, or I've got a drug addiction problem, um, whoever is on that other line will be able to help me or help my family and kind of maybe guide me to where I should go? Absolutely. It does not have to be COVID related. Anything that you're feeling regarding mental health or substance use disorders or stress and anxiety at this time, you can reach in that number and someone will be there to talk to you and, and point you in the right direction. Director, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. For being on. Uh, as I do each Tuesday, I'm going to take a moment to talk about gun violence in this state. Um, we should all be sick and tired of picking up the newspaper and seeing the things that we see literally every single day. Uh, our fellow Ohioans uh, injured or killed through senseless violence. Uh, since I last talked about this a week ago, at least 42 more people in Ohio were shot. More than half of them, 23 men, women, children, have died. Um, just this week, 23 lives cut short, 20 more families who are needlessly having to grieve. Tomorrow will mark one year, one year since Senator Matt Dolan and I announced legislation to help local law enforcement, to help prosecutors, to help judges uh, get tougher on those relatively small number of criminals who are responsible for most gun crimes. Convicted felons, convicted of a crime of violence, who illegally have guns. This legislation is still pending in front of the legislature. I again would ask the legislature to take action. Eric, let's look at some headlines. Uh, in the past two weeks, two weeks, in the past, excuse me, in the past week, um, two 15-year-old boys were killed on Tuesday. And I quote, 15-year-old, one of the latest homicide victims in Columbus. Then on Thursday in Cleveland, 15-year-old boy found dead in field after being shot. It is an absolute tragedy. On Friday, this headline. 12-year-old boy shot in the face in Cleveland's Ohio City neighborhood. And Willowick police officer at home recovering after being shot during a traffic stop. Um, child that we were talking about survived, as did the Willowick police officer who was shot in the chest during a traffic stop. Uh, reports say his bulletproof vest may have been what saved his life. Also Friday, headline. 25-year-old man fatally shot during fight at bar on Akron's east side, two in critical condition. Let's talk a little bit more about this case. According to reports, one person was shot and killed. One person was shot and critically injured, and a third person was critically injured when she was hit by a car fleeing the scene. The alleged gunman was arrested a short time later. According to public records, this suspect, 
is a convicted felon prohibited from having a gun. In fact, the suspect was caught illegally carrying a gun in the past and was sent back to prison, but for only six months. The reality is oftentimes convicted felons caught illegally carrying guns don't go to jail or don't go to prison very long. We have to change that. We need to give our judges, we need to give our prosecutors, we need to give our police more flexibility. Get this relatively small number of violent repeat offenders off our streets. The legislation we announced last October would give judges the authority to sentence a convicted felon to up to eight years in prison the first time they're caught illegally possessing a gun. Up to the judge, but we give them that discretion. The possible sentence goes up to 11 years if they're caught with a gun again after that. Uh, this legislation is necessary. It will, in fact, save lives. I again ask the General Assembly to work with us. Uh, take this measure, which we know, absolutely know, uh, might not save every life, but it will save lives. There's no doubt about it. Let me talk briefly, and then we'll go to the Lieutenant Governor. Um, the ongoing pandemic has impacted so many people and hurt so many people uh, just besides those who have gotten sick. Uh, we have Ohioans who are struggling to pay their rent, their mortgage, water and sewer utility bills. Uh, we are working closely uh, with our partners in the General Assembly and hope to have something to announce early next week uh, about some additional some money that we will take, the coronavirus money, uh, that we will take what's called the CARES Act dollars, and we will take to help those people who have, pay, have to pay their rent, and they're way behind their rent, their mortgage. Um, second, we're also going to give some help uh, to our small businesses and to our nonprofits. Uh, again, many of them are teetering right on the edge, uh, and we know it's been a horrible, horribly difficult time for them. So, We'll be doing this. I'm, I'm talking about today, and I talked a little bit about last week, just to tell people it's coming uh, when we get everything worked out with the General Assembly uh, and have it ready to go, and we can put it out so that you can people can start applying. Um, we'll be able to announce that, and we hope we hope that will be uh, early next week. Today's the first day of early voting in Ohio. Uh, Ohioans can go to their county board of elections to vote in person if they do not want to or are not able to go to the polls on election day. Um, they also obviously have the, the option of, of absentee uh, ballots. Uh, so we encourage everyone to do that. We encourage um, you to be kind uh, to, you know, the poll workers, to the people who are manning, uh, doing the work at the Board of Elections, as well as the people ultimately who will be doing it on Election Day by, you know, wearing a mask and standing in line. We saw some pictures and some of the newspapers that put up this morning uh, early, people standing in lines and, uh, um you know, just please be careful, uh, be safe. And uh, let me turn it over to the Lieutenant Governor. I know Lieutenant Governor, as former Secretary of State, uh, has been involved in elections a lot. And I don't know, John, if you want to say anything more about that or uh, what other comments that you have. Yeah, thanks, Governor. Uh, old habits die hard. I do would like to say I was, I was looking at some of the video showing people standing in line and Remember, you don't have to stand in line in Ohio. There's still plenty of time to request an absentee ballot. You can fill that ballot out 
and you can either mail it back in or you could drop it off at the drop box at that local board of elections. So that same place that you would be standing in line, you can just request your absentee ballot, fill it out and just physically drop it off there at that board of elections so that you don't have to stand in a line. Just one convenience that the Ohio system of elections allows you that uh, just a reminder that you could take advantage of. Um, uh, appreciate governor the the uh, acknowledgement of the work that's being done to to pull together some of the the efforts around small business. I, I would like to talk about the economy today, both in terms of of um, how we're uh, recovering from both a health and and uh, an economic point of view. Uh, we all know that Ohio is home of a lot of great research. We have wonderful colleges and universities that, that do a lot of wonderful things in the area of innovation. Um, but when we got here, one of the things the Innovate Ohio team was looking at uh, that you charged us with, Governor, is to uh, find out maybe why some of that, that uh, great intellectual property uh, in our colleges and universities was not being commercialized, why we weren't developing enough small businesses as, as a result of that, uh, which we know create jobs and help bolster our economy. Uh, what we found when we, we looked at that was that it was a little bureaucratic getting that intellectual property uh, out of the university system, both from a standpoint of uh, contract negotiations and just uh, speed to market. It, wasn't, it was slow. It was not very entrepreneurial. Uh, it was not functioning at the speed of business. So the Innovate Ohio team um, partnered with the Ohio Department of, of Education, Ohio Department of Higher Education, and the Inner University Council, who was who was just instrumental in this, uh, at looking how we could change it uh, to create less friction, save time and money, and move more intellectual property into the marketplace. And that's when we created the Ohio IP Promise. Uh, the, I, the IP promise uh, included 14 or 14 public uh, universities and two privates, uh, Case, Western University, uh, and uh, the University of Dayton. And the IP promise was uh, a uniform, uh, transparent way of taking this intellectual property and moving it uh, into the marketplace, into commercialization, and really to take these great innovations on our campuses and helping improve people's lives. And uh, after this one year anniversary, I wanted to give a little report on where we stand. Uh, I had some great conversations uh, with some of these uh, universities to talk about their successes. I uh, had a wonderful one last week with David Adams, who's UC, so University of Cincinnati's Chief Innovation Officer and the head of the UC Research Institute. Uh, after the completion of the Ohio, Ohio IP Promise, he noted that Last year, University of Cincinnati had a 400% increase in the number of startups that were spun out of UC intellectual property. And this year alone, there have a 1,000% increase. Uh, am amazing work going on at the University of Cincinnati uh, in becoming more entrepreneurial. Uh, additionally, at Ohio University, the uh, AEIOU Scientific uh, has developed technology that recently won a NASA iTech Ignite the Night Pitch Competition that helps, uh, and, and their technology helps predict bone weakness in a non-invasive manner. That's obviously important for NASA, but just think of the, the geriatric and, and, and other health um, implications that, uh, that this potentially has, health value that this has coming out of that research. 
Um, I will also note something that happened at the University of Dayton Research Institute uh, as a result of the Ohio IP promise, and that was uh, the development in, uh, of this uh, of x-rays to diagnose COVID-19. And they used the principles outlined in the Ohio IP promise to get that to market in just two and a half days, to commercialize that in just two and a half days, to get it licensed and, gen and it's now licensed and generating revenue for the university and is being used to diagnose COVID cases through x-rays. Uh, Ohio State, uh, the Ohio State University has more than 100 active startup companies in their portfolio, um, many of them uh, using the Ohio IP promise to, to move forward with this. So I want to thank the Ohio Department of Higher Education, the tech transfer offices at these universities and the Inter-University Council, and note that today we will be announcing three areas of collaboration for the IP promise commercialization efforts. First, there will be a statewide inter-institutional agreement, and these will allow more than two institutions to jointly own an invention and to work together to commercialize it. Uh, these agreements uh, define the responsibilities for marketing, uh, licensing, and the proportional costs and the royalties. And it's just a new tool that we have to promote collaboration on universities. Uh, we're also going to gather uh, in the second component of this, gather statewide collection of in institutional entrepreneurial resources. A lot of things out there for professors and researchers to use. The, in the entrepreneurial space that they maybe didn't know exists. We're going to help make sure they know how to contact, uh, how they can use that information. And then third, establish agreements among the inter-university inter council members to use a consistent non-financial starting for, of terms uh, for these agreements. Um, as a measurement of the, IO, of the IP promise success, we're going to use five benchmarks, the number of invention disclosures, the number of technologies licensed, the number of startups launched, the total number of portfolio funding, and the net promoter score as a measure of stakeholder satisfaction. The bottom line is, is that we're trying to take the power of innovation and in research on our university campuses, improve people's lives with it, make it easier for entrepreneurs and businesses to commercialize this, uh, and hopefully uh, light a fire under our state's economy uh, with the, the great talent and research that's happening in our colleges and universities. Uh, five or 10 years from now, there, there's going to be a great business that we're all proud of in Ohio that is the result of the intellectual property that's sitting on the shelf somewhere right now at one of our colleges and universities that we're going to get off the shelf, turn it in development, and move it into becoming one of these uh, great business startups in our state. That's what this is all about. And... Um, we're excited about step two of the Ohio IP promise. Oh, I've also talked about uh, in my role here on these news conferences about how businesses are, are helping us during this COVID time period to, to um, help contribute to the health and, and, and the health of our state and also grow the economy at the same time. We announced a, a little while ago that, that Jobs Ohio and DSA, uh, Jobs Ohio is going to have some revitalization grants for Appalachia, that the Development Services Agency had some grants for PPE. Uh, we, we are announcing today that, uh, or want to highlight today during Manufacturing Month, um, that there's a company in Jackson County in Southeast Ohio, uh, in the heart of Appalachia, 
uh, Phoenix Quality Manufacturing that's announced that with these grants, they're going to start manufacturing N95 masks in Jackson County. It'll create uh, approximately 40 jobs. They're going to convert 23,000 square feet of former manufacturing um, uh, facility uh, for elemental uh, products. Uh, they're going to use this now to produce N95 masks, and uh, this will this will serve customers in the region uh, across the region of our country, uh, statewide, and 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 ultimately we hope nationally and internationally. And uh, I just want to thank the collaboration of the private public collaboration of of Jobs Ohio, the Ohio Development Services Agency, the Ohio Valley Regional Development Commission, Appalachian Growth Capital, and Jackson County Job and Family Services for helping get this started. This is what we said. Take, we know we need PPE. We know we need jobs. We know we need economic development. Putting some of that startup capital in to get this going, and hopefully we'll be able to sustain this as, because we don't ever want to find ourselves again in a position where we don't have adequate PPE to serve our state. And, um, and also in closing, Governor, let me add that um, on Ohio Means Jobs website, there are 165,000 jobs currently available, 81,700 of them pay over $50,000 a year. And uh, I just remind people of that. You may be struggling. You may, you, you may have lost your job in one industry that's been devastated by the coronavirus pandemic, uh, but there are a lot of others that are flourishing during this time frame. We need to get you connected with those. Uh, we have the training, the, the training programs available also on that site, and the employers of our state have done a great job at creating safe environments for employees to go to work. So um, use Ohio Means Jobs as a resource for you to help you uh, get your career uh, restarted uh, as we uh, begin to move forward, living with the coronavirus in our lives and doing so successfully. Thanks, Governor. John, that's so very, uh, very, very important. Uh, it's also uh, really exciting about uh, the N95 mask going to be made in Jackson, Ohio. We love it. Uh, this is something that uh, we've worked on a long time. A lot of people have worked on to get that done. And, you know, we talked about one of the enduring uh, lessons of this coronavirus is that never, ever again do we want to be in a position where we have to import all our personal protection equipment. Um, we don't want to do that. And so making N95 masks in Ohio uh, is, a, is a great, great thing. Uh, ready to go to questions. First question today, Governor, is from Shane Stegmiller at Hanna News Service. Thank you, Governor, for taking my uh, question. Yeah. Could you talk about the decision to allow the Browns and maybe the Bengals to raise their spectator capacity? And where are you at on raising the capacity at other sports and entertainment venues? And also, can you talk about the discussions on lifting the 10 p.m. alcohol sales restrictions as well? Sure. Um, we've made no decision yet on the uh, 10 p.m. alcohol, um, certainly under consideration. Um, you know, I understand what this is doing. This, this does hurt small businesses, people who are running restaurants and bars. I'm going to have an opportunity in the next several days to talk to uh, a number of representatives from the Restaurant Association. Uh, we're trying to balance that. Uh, we also are hearing from some of our mayors, uh, you know, one mayor who's for it, but uh, we have 
most of the other mayors that are talking to us are saying, you know, they do not want to see that done. And so we're trying to balance, you know, the, the that whole issue of safety at the same time, you know, protecting our small businesses. Both of these things are important. And so, you know, that's what we're trying. That's what we're trying to uh, to balance. As far as the uh, Bengals and the Browns, uh, we started by uh, the first games uh, at 6,000 people. Um, I don't know the exact capacity, but, you know, we're over 50,000, uh, I think, in both both uh, uh, places. And uh, we kind of looked at that. We talked to the local health departments. We talked to local officials uh, to see what impact that had. Uh, it looked like uh, it, it was it was safe. Uh, they really didn't have any incidents. Um, so we were, thought we could take it up to 12. This would give more football fans uh, in Ohio uh, the opportunity to go, but also do it in, in a safe way. Uh, and I think we're probably at where we're going to stop. Uh, and I made it very clear to the ownership of the Browns and the Bengals that, uh, you know, this is a game by game, but we don't see any reason uh, that it couldn't continue at, at, at 12,000 uh, people. That would seem to be a reasonable thing. Uh, we have our overall guidelines. Um, we look at each case uh, just as we did with, with high school football. We had variances, and we gave, gave some variances there. So we're trying to provide the broad guidelines in the big, uh, big events. You know, again, we try to uh, measure everything to make sure that it is, in fact, uh, safe. And we also look at, frankly, the, you know, the impact on uh, what's going on downtown and other things. Next question is from Jackie Borchert at the Cincinnati Inquirer. Hey, Jackie. Hey, how are you? Um, you mentioned uh, this school study using the rapid antigen tests. Um, rapid antigen tests have only been approved by the FDA to test people with symptoms. And the CDC has said um, several times that even if you get a negative test and you've been exposed, you should still quarantine for, for 14 days. So I was hoping to talk a little bit more about why you think an Ohio-based school study would show something different than what the, the various CDC studies have shown. Is this just a, um, uh, no. uh, just, just yeah. to appease the school officials? No. Um, uh, look, we don't want to move away from CDC unless there's some data that shows that we are safe in moving away from CDC. Um, you know, getting a study in Ohio schools uh, that is spread out uh, among different demographics uh, will provide us with more information. It does not mean there'll be a decision to move. Uh, it doesn't mean anything. It simply means we're trying to get some additional, additional information. Uh, we are looking at how to use these tests. As you know, uh, Ohio will be receiving about 128,000 of these tests, we believe, every seven to 10 days. Uh, and we continue to work on how we're going to deploy them to save lives, how we're going to deploy them to allow Ohioans to uh, do, do more things and tr try to do more things safely. So this would come under the the second category, but we're going to see what the test, what, what we come up with, and uh, we're going to go with the facts. Next question is from Sean Lanier at WCMH in Columbus. Um, Governor Nguyen, yeah, as you may know, the 
uh, Columbus City Council just repealed their curfew, their 10 p.m. curfew, understanding that the uh, statewide last call order is in place. I know you just touched on it a little bit, but is there any type of timeline that you're looking at to to make an announcement? Is there any any indicators that you're looking at or or, or specialists that you, that are talking to you about uh, when this could possibly change? Understanding that you're trying to balance uh, the safety, but also the sustainability of these uh, bars and restaurants that are hurting because of this order. Sure. Uh, Mayor Ginther and I talk uh, at least twice a week, usually four or five times a week. And, um, you know, he, he knows that we're looking at this. He, he's very aware of the fact that we are, we are looking at this. Um, you know, he's expressed his opinion that uh, he hopes we don't change it. Uh, we have Mayor Cranley uh, in Cincinnati who wants us to change it. Uh, so we, you know, we take all the information and we try to balance these, these things. Um, want to keep our economy going, want to protect our small business, but at the same time, um, you know, we're watching the numbers, uh, watching what's happening and trying to, you know, keep Ohio from spiking up, uh, flaring, flaring up. So it's, it's no different than many of the other decisions we make, frankly. Uh, there's, no, there's no easy answer and there's no, no perfect answer. And there's usually a two answers that uh, neither one are perfect. And you know, both are kind of, in one sense, one's try to figure out which is the worst alternative. So we're, we're looking at these things and we're trying to, trying to weigh this out. Next question is from Andrew Welsh Huggins at the Associated Press. Happy birthday, Andrew. I hear it might be your birthday today. Hi, Governor. It is. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Um, I just had two quick questions uh, following up on the small business uh, renter mortgage aid package that you, you're working on that you mentioned earlier. Um, so in terms of making the money available quickly, uh, how seriously are you looking at an option like the controlling board as the fastest method to deliver the aid? And then um, longer term, especially with last week's report that initial unemployment claims ticked back up, um, what are your concerns that small businesses and low-income renters are going to need even more help down the road than what this package can deliver? Well, they certainly may need more than we can deliver uh, with this package. Uh, as far as using the controlling board, uh, of course, that is a creature of the state legislature. Um, you know, there's two ways to get money out. You can, we can pass a bill uh, or we can, you know, go through the controlling board. In either case, you know, we need um, uh, the support of, of the legislature. Uh, so this is a dual project. And, uh, you know, I, I feel good, though. I think that we're, we're coming close to having this thing worked out about what we can do now. Uh, and because we want to get some of this money out. But I, I think you're right. I mean, we could be you know, we don't know how long uh, we're going to see a downturn in the economy. I mean, we, we're, we're, we're battling back, we're doing things, but uh, we still have a lot of people hurting and we need to, you know, we need to be able to give them some relief. Uh, you know, part of this is a mental health issue. If you're sitting there and you got, you know, a number of months of rent back and, uh, you know, you're worried about your family, uh, you're worried about where is that money going to come from? Am I going to get evicted from my house? Am I going to get evicted from my apartment? You know, none of that's good. None of that is good. And so we want to provide some relief there. Um, that money will go out also and, and you know, it will spread throughout the economy uh, very quickly. Uh, it will help the landlord who owns it might have a mortgage to pay too. 
Um, and so it will have a big, big impact, I think, as we as we put this money out. And, uh, you know, what we balance as we look at this is to make sure that we have um, sufficient money for the testing that we're going to need. Uh, we also have a, a big question mark out there, and that's what Congress is going to do <laughs> and whether or not Congress is going to, uh, uh, you know, allow us to carry this money over until next year. Uh, is the Congress going to pass a separate bill where they provide additional funds to do different things? And so we're, we're, we're kind of we're, we're waiting, but we can't wait. And uh, this is something that we think that we can set this money aside. We can push this money out. We can help people now. At the same time, we'll still have money back, uh, you know, in regard to the testing and the other things that we absolutely have to have the money to be able to do to, to fight this virus. Thank you. Next question is from Mike Livingston at Gongwar News Service. Hi, Governor. Uh, regarding your strong Ohio proposal, obviously the lame duck session is quickly approaching. If this does not pass this GA, uh, what's your plan? Do you bring it back next year? Do you maybe try to narrow the soap to make it an easier lift? Thanks. Mike, you know I'm an I'm a eternal optimist. Um, and... Um, I'm not going to talk about what happens if we if we don't get it passed. Uh, we're going to we're going to stay on this, and uh, we look forward to a you know a lame duck session where we can we can do some of these things. Next question is from Jeff Reddick at WSYX in Columbus. Good afternoon, Governor. Uh, you touched on the president's remarks. Uh, much has been made of the fact that he said we shouldn't be afraid of the virus. Um, and how his condition improved. Uh, he also received an experimental uh, cocktail of drugs not widely available. Uh, and I'm just curious what your efforts or the health department's efforts are to improve treatments in Ohio such that they might be more in line with the great care the president received at some point in the future? Well, I think we all want the president to have the best care that was possible. Uh, we would want that for our president. Um, as far as getting drugs, getting care uh, to people who have COVID, uh, this is an area, frankly, uh, where I think we've seen some significant um, uh, increase in, in the ability to care for patients. Um, still have people dying. We still have people going to the hospital. But uh, there are more tools available today. There's more knowledge available in regard to, to the doctors. Uh, this is an area where I take no credit. Uh, this is what doctors have done. Uh, this is what the medical community has done. This is what the researchers have done. So when we're talking about getting drugs, more drugs to individuals, uh, more therapeutic, more ability to deal with people, you know, how you treat someone with COVID, that's out, of, that's out of my league. I take no credit for it, but we are going up and we're moving in the right direction, not just in Ohio, but as a country. Uh, we have some of the world's most premier medical institutions uh, in the state of Ohio and some of the most amazing doctors and researchers. So we are contributing uh, in Ohio, not me, but we're contributing to, to the knowledge base that exists around this, uh, this very, very dangerous virus. And that will continue and we'll continue to move, move forward on that. Governor, if I could... If I could add um, one thing, well, as the governor stated, 
you know, we're not, we're not the doctors, but what we do is we do respond when Ohio's doctors ask us to, uh, when they've needed contacts with the FDA uh, to help speed up the process for convalescent plasma treatments and other things that they've asked us to do. We've engaged with our medical community uh, to provide the support and the help that we can to help them do what they think is best. So we've been we've been taking our cues from the, the medical leaders and we have great hospitals and institutions in this state and we have responded uh, by reaching out to to try to get those clearances for those experimental treatments as, as uh, quickly as we can to serve the people of Ohio. Next question is from Alex Ebert at Bloomberg. Good afternoon, Governor. Thanks for this opportunity. Hey, on, on Sunday, in an interview, you said that President Trump's administration was not helping state officials with contract tracing after the Cleveland debate last week. Can you clarify if that is still the case? And if they are helping, what are they doing to do contact tracing following the debate? Thank you. Yeah, I think I think what I, what I said or what I meant to say uh, was I was not aware of, of that going on. Uh, on on two occasions, I have talked uh uh, to the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic about this issue. Um, you know, what he told me is, you know, in the room itself, um, uh, you know, everyone had tested negative. Uh, they had people spaced out. I was not in the room, uh, but he felt that the only person, uh, you know, that would need necessarily to be contact traced probably uh, would, would, would have been uh, Mr. Wallace. Uh, and of course, we saw that he he got a test later. So you know, as far as contract contact, excuse me, contact tracing within that room, I don't know that there was anything uh, you know that that should have been done. But again, Cleveland Clinic is is there. They're the ones who would have been in contact with the local health department uh, if something was was going to happen as a, as a direct result of that that movement of the president coming in and the president leaving. So, and that's, that's really the, you know, uh, the extent of my, my knowledge of it. Next question is from Carl Hunnell at richlandsource.com. Oh, sorry. Good afternoon, Governor. Hey, Richland, uh, Richland County on Thursday may become the state's first level four county under the public health advisory system. And that's based at least in part on outbreaks in the two state prisons here. What exactly does this designation mean in terms of restrictions for residents, schools and businesses in this county? And is it fair to local residents to have the purple designation be made when one of the drivers is the two state prisons here? Thank you. Yeah, for some of the things that we look at, Carl, uh, the prison is removed from there. And uh, I, I'll, I'm going to let our statisticians, uh, our data people, uh, get that information to you and to everyone uh, exactly what the prison outbreak, which there certainly is one, uh, wh what it impacts and what it does not. In answer to your question, um, these color codes are really to inform people um, of the nature of a problem. Um, and so, you know, you, you start at the yellow, you go to the orange, and then into the red. 
uh, the, and then, of course, there would be potentially the, the purple there. But if they would go purple, if they would go purple, um, again, it, it means nothing as far as what the state is telling them to do. Uh, it's it, it, Again, red is the indicator that people should say, okay, look, we we got a problem here. What's what's going on? And let's look at the data and let's, you know, is our mask wearing high enough, uh, et cetera. But there's no punitive action by the state of Ohio. And yes, you know, we, we fully realize there is a prison there and, and citizens of the community are not responsible for what that goes on in the prison. The fact is, however, that people who live in Richland County work in the prison, as do people, I'm sure, from many counties around. And so, you know, it does have an impact, um, you know, on what's going on in, in, in the community and the, the color would, would might, you know, reflect that. Uh, but we'll get you uh, a breakout of the indicators and which indicators, you know, has anything to do with, with, with the prison. But, uh, you know, again, I think people should be alert now uh, that we do have significant spread uh, in the county. Plus, we have in other indicators of, of use uh, of, of medical, whether it's in the emergency room, whether it's in a doctor's office. You know, those indicators going off, which says, "Hey, we got a we have a problem," but we also have these are early indicators that there's there's more of a problem. Could be more of a problem down the road. That's all we're trying to do. And, you know, the map I put up a few minutes ago at the beginning where we put the high incidence counties and we put the counties with the different colors, those are just trying to alert people, hey, this is what's going on in, in you know, in your community. And we think uh, because, you know, we want to be transparent and we want to give people the best information that we can. But we'll have some more for you. Next question is from Ben Schwartz at WCPO in Cincinnati. Hey, Ben. Um, do you think that President Trump's reaction to his positive COVID test is endangering Ohioans at all, specifically about his and his administration's willingness to take off their masks while around others and the example they're setting while the state is still encouraging Ohioans to wear masks while possible? Yeah, Ben, I mean, I, I talked earlier about what I think we should take away from this. And, and one of the things that we should take away from this is that um, frequent testing, which we can assume everybody had, um, is important, but it does not substitute for wearing a mask. It does not substitute for keeping a, a distance. Um, and look, I've made no uh, uh, secret of this. You know, I wish the president would wear the mask more. I wish he'd wear it all the time when he was in public. Uh, and I said that before, you know, he had the coronavirus. So, you know, but I, what I try to distill down uh, for the people, 11.7 million people I represent in Ohio, uh, is what can we take away from this? Uh, what lessons that are lessons that we can focus on? Uh, you know, we're, we're not we're not the president. Uh, we're not going to fly in a helicopter probably, you know, unless there's some emergency and air flight comes and gets us. But for the average person, what do we take away from this? What do all of us in Ohio take away from it? And I think the lesson about the testing, that testing is very important, but it is not a substitute for the mass, not a substitute for the distance, not a substitute for, for those other things. 
Um, and we just should have, a, a, I think, a renewed sense that we can live with this, but we got to be tough. We got to be strong and uh, we got to be resilient. And, and, and part of that is wearing a mask. Um, so there's there's some lessons from what what happened with with the president, and we should learn from some of these things. Next question is from Laura Hancock at Cleveland.com. Good afternoon, Governor. Hi, I'm circling back to the Cleveland Browns um, spectator decision. Um, the owners and upper management of at, at the Browns had requested you guys increase it from a range between around 11,000 to around 16,000 spectators. Um, what was the science that made you guys settle at 12,000? And like, what's the science that has you con um, concluding that the cap this season needs to be around 12,000 spectators? I'm sorry, I missed the last sentence. Give me the last sentence again. Um, what is the science that has you guys um, concluding that you need to cap the spectators at 12,000 this season? Yeah, part of this is an art. Part, part of this is an art as well as a science. But we, you know, we we try to go by the science, and the, the science is is pretty basic. Uh, the science is outside is generally better than inside, not always, uh, as certainly as we found out in, in, the, in, the, in the Rose Garden. Um, doesn't guarantee you're going to be safe, uh, but it's better uh, than certainly being, being inside. Um, distance is important. And, you know, you know, the ability to wear a mask uh, and the team requiring and the people who run the game, run the stadium, uh, requiring people to keep their mask on. You know, these were all things that were important. And so what we wanted to do with both the Browns and Bengals is start with 6,000. You know, as you saw, if you watched uh, any of these games on TV, uh, it's, they're pretty spread out. Uh, it's 6,000. And um, we wanted to try that and see, okay, how's that going to work? How's the flow into the game going to work? How's the use of restrooms going to work? And the health departments of both those cities were, were there and, and were able to observe that. Uh, the mayors and their health departments, we, you know, we were able to co contact them. So we started with 6,000. It just, you know, we felt fairly safe with that. Um, and we figured that doubling that, uh, spreading it out all over uh, the stadium, uh, would still allow enough room. Uh, could, it be, could it have been 13,000? Could it have been 11,000? Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, you know, we kind of looked at what we had at 6,000, felt very comfortable with that, feel comfortable at doubling it. Um, you know, that's probably about as far as we're, we're going to go. Um, you know, again, we have an obligation to provide a safe environment for people who, who go in there. They're going to be there a long time. These games last three hours, uh, sometimes a little longer. Uh, so people get there half an hour before the game, they're going to be there maybe up to close to four hours. So it's a long time to be in your seat. Um, and so the proximity is certainly there. So you want to keep people spread out. But there's no, you know, there's no magic about 12. It just seemed to be the, the right the right place to come out, knowing and following the basic health guidelines that we've been hearing and talking about. Next question is from Jim Adi at WHIO in Dayton. Hey, Jim. Hey, Governor. Um, given the fact that the president now says don't fear the COVID and you're now saying, uh, well, continue with caution. Uh, I'm talking about now about upcoming events. Trick or treat is the next one coming. What are you recommending to parents? They, 
Should they continue their Halloween events, trick or treat, even if they still live in a in a county where there's some spread? I'm thinking of Mercer County here, even though they live in a level three, a red county. I'm thinking of Montgomery County there. What are you telling parents now are trying to make sense of this? Uh, look, Jim, whatever you're doing, uh, you know, looking at, at what how widespread uh, spread is uh, of COVID in your county matters. I mean, you know, you can just go through and think, uh, you know, if your child's knocking on X number of doors, well, your odds have gone up that somebody inside might have COVID. They might not even know it. Um, so, you know, these are we try to help families make these decisions based upon is it your county high incidence? How high is that? Uh, is it a red county? And to look at these things, that's just it's one piece of information. Um, but there's so many other variables. Um, you know, could you go with your young child and trick or treat if you're exceedingly careful? Um, you know, I think it depends on how many people, how many, uh, ghosts and goblins are running around that neighborhood, you know, the more, and you're bumping into more people, it's kind of, you know, not, not, not what you want to see. So I think, you know, spreading the kids out. Um, and I'm not recommending that people do it or don't do it. Uh, I just think this is a parent decision, but we have an obligation to inform parents of, of, you know, the best available information. And so, you know, we remain concerned, uh, you know, about close contact uh, with other kids, close contact with that person at that door. Uh, and so, you know, somebody came up with a recommendation of, you know, if you could set out things that, you know, you, a child could pick up uh, and separate it enough from the other things that might be difficult, the other pieces of candy, uh, you know, these are all things that, that people can work on and uh, people are very creative at Halloween and, you know, they can put some of that creativity towards trying to keep the kids safe who, who go. I think when you get away from that and you go to parties uh, you go to big gatherings uh, downtown, you know, those make no sense. Um, you know, those just don't, don't make any sense. Uh, and I think for the normal classic trick or treating, I think we leave this up to parents. We leave this up to communities. Uh, they should be informed by what is going on out there, uh, and in their, in their particular, their particular county. Next question is from Andy Chow at Ohio Public Radio and Television. Andy. Hi, Governor. Hi, Governor. Uh, jumping off on sort of uh, Jeff's question and, and the idea of learning lessons from the president's diagnosis, and, and I think you might have said this, and I just kind of want to be clear. Does the state plan on reaching out to the White House to learn more about the treatment that the president received to, to see if maybe there could be advances in treatment for people here in Ohio based on the treatment that the president received? Yeah, again, again, um, you know, we will do what any, uh, anytime any of our uh, great hospitals ask us what to do. In other words, if they can't get information. So uh, if, if any of our hospitals uh, needed that information, we would certainly make the phone call, do whatever needed to be done. Uh, but they are really good. <laughs> and uh, I, I just can guarantee you that our hospitals are looking at, you know, every single possibility uh, to keep people alive, to allow them to recover. 
uh, we have very, very, very good hospitals. And our bigger hospitals are sharing information with our smaller hospitals. Uh, you know, we put together a system with the Ohio Hospital Association early on in this pandemic, uh, where we have partnered larger, larger, uh, more research-oriented uh, institutions with our smaller county hospitals. And uh, there's that relation that exists. So, you know, any time that we can be of help uh, in that area to facilitate that, we'll do that. Uh, and, you know, as a result of your question, I certainly will, will call uh, some of our contacts at uh, some of our major hospitals and, and see if there's anything that we can do. But uh, knowing them, uh, they're way, way up on it. And, uh, you know, they're looking at these different drugs. They're aware of what drugs the president uh, utilize. They're aware, aware of what the availability of those drugs would be. But uh, I'll have those conversations with our major hospitals. It's a good idea. Next question is from Jim Province at the Toledo Blade. Hi, Governor. Hey, Jim. Hi, this, this question will be for you and for the Lieutenant Governor. Um, have both of you requested absentee ballots? Is that how you plan to vote? Does the First Lady plan to vote that way? Well, I've not asked the First Lady, so we've not had that discussion. Uh, we've talked a little bit about it uh, early on. Uh, I don't know how we're going to vote yet. Um, you know, we normally vote uh, here in Cedarville and, and go in and vote in person, uh, but uh, I'll check with Fran. I don't know if John's on there or not. Uh, I, I've voted throughout the years. I've voted everywhere. I voted early in person. I voted by mail uh, and voted in person on election day. As of right now, I intend to vote in person on election day. Uh, wearing my mask and joining my wife and we'll go and we'll vote. Next question is from Jack Windsor at WMFD in Mansfield. Hey, Jack. Hi, Governor. Hello, sir. Uh, two quick scenarios with the same fundamental question. Uh, today, a female student would have been the first golfer from Eastern Pike High to ever compete in the district tournament. But because she was named as a contact in a COVID case, the Ohio Department of Health wouldn't let her play, despite her not being sick and despite pleas from the Pike County Health District. Uh, as Carl Hunnell mentioned, Richland County uh, may go purple on Thursday, uh, despite uh, two-tenths of one percent of the population. Uh, being infected. In July, you said the advisory system was made for local leaders to make decisions, and it appears that's also what you said today. So, Governor, why was the high school golfer denied the chance to play if the local officials are allowed to make the decisions? And what can, uh, can you be more specific about what powers elected officials have regarding schools, businesses, and other measures here in Richland County? Well, as far as Richland County, I think I answered that with the other question. Um, you know, again, going purple, uh, you know, has no consequences or sanctions from the state of Ohio. And that's the same way as being red. Um, let, me, let me talk about uh, the student golfer, um, but I want to talk about all student athletes. Um, there's been a lot of things uh, throughout uh, this pandemic that has been uh, very sad. Uh, caused me a lot of anguish, uh, but it's not about me. It's about what these kids are going through. Um, I talked earlier about uh, nursing homes, where we had to shut the nursing homes down uh, as far as visitors. 
We did it to, to keep people safe, but we all, also what happened was that people got, you know, weren't able to see their loved ones and with horror, you know, many times very difficult consequences. And, uh, you know, I've heard directly from, from people who've lost a parent uh, and who felt their parent died because no one could go visit the parent. Um, we've heard, uh, I've talked with superintendents, we've got a lot of emails from superintendents um, who talk about, you know, CDC guidelines, which are the state guidelines, which are, which are followed uh, by local health departments and saying, can't we change those? Now, what do you do about the student, you know, who um, is sitting by another student and um, they're within six feet or two, they're close uh, because the school is back in, can't spread them out anymore. And one, the student, uh, one student comes down and yeah, you got a confirmed case of the virus. And then people who have been around that student that day, who've been around them for more than 15 minutes end up, you end up being quarantined. So we've really been looking at this. Um, our health advisors, not just in the health department, but, but our, our main doctors around the state uh, are, are very uh, reluctant, frankly, to change that guidance uh, unless there's some data that indicates that, um, you know, that spread with two people having a mask on three feet apart or four feet or five feet or whatever it is, uh, that the incidence of spread is very, very, very low. And if it's not very low, uh, or, you know, then there's a feeling that we should not change that. And so my heart goes out to, to the student who you're talking about. Uh, it goes out to, you know, runners who can't run, football players who can't play football, uh, you know, soccer players who can't play, volleyball players, uh, you know, goes out to a student who's in drama, a student who is doing, wants to do something else and they can't do it, uh, or just a student who can't go to school. Uh, but those are the generally accepted best practices, guidelines, um, and what we're trying to do with the study that I talked about is to f figure out, hey, is there a way we can lessen those? Is there a way that we can get real data, look at it in Ohio from a representative sample of students, students who have been exposed within that six feet, over 15 minutes, um, and track them and have them take three tests a week or whatever the, the experts tell us and be regularly tested and follow that and come up with some data that may be able to allow us to change this. Um, we started this, as you recall, uh, with pe many people saying, I want to have my kids personally in school. Uh, I don't want them to be remote. So we let schools make that decision. We let parents make that decision, which is the right thing to do, we thought. We still do. Uh, same way as sports. We said, let them go play. But we also said, we're going to have to follow basic health guidelines. And these are the basic health guidelines that we're going to have to follow. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a tough situation for her. I'm very, very sorry for her. Uh, I know that doesn't help her a bit, but I'm very sorry for her. I think if this was my, my child, how upset I would be, and I understand that. But we've got to try to keep people safe at the same time we're trying to get as many kids out uh, playing sports and going to school as we can. Um, I think that's the last question. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all um, on Thursday. Thank you very much.